Welcome to this podcast from Harvest Community Church of Huntersville, North Carolina, where our vision is to make disciples who make disciples. I'm your host, Liz Stefanini. Christmas is almost here. Today's podcast is the message Senior Pastor Jerry Barber delivered at Harvest five days before Christmas in 2020. Whether you hear this before or after Christmas, it definitely will give you the insight into what really matters all the time, not just at Christmas, as we dive deeply into God's Word. It's an exciting time of the year right here at Christmas. Thank you for joining us. We hope you'll also join us for our Christmas Eve service that uh, will be in this same format. And then we're right at the beginning of the year and always on January 1 at Harvest, we do 40 days of prayer. The entire church works through things together. There's something for every single day, scripture and prayer. And really now people that once were at Harvest have moved to different parts of the country. There are people all over the country doing this together. Those guides are already available in hard copy, and soon they'll be on our website in a PDF. So thank you for joining us. Let's think about Christmas. Let's think about presents. Let's think about surprises. Uh, what, what's the biggest surprise that ever happened to you at Christmas? When I was a kid, I remember one, one Christmas morning, we woke up, my sister and I, we go in, and normally, you know, the presents are there under the tree or whatever, but there really kind of wasn't anything there. And my parents said, oh, you need to you need to go out to the back porch and out on that little small back porch. Uh, I walked out there and what did I see? A ping pong table. That was awesome as a as a young kid. That was such a surprise. Uh, now, I've I've made many, many mistakes as a husband, I'm sure uh, not caring for my wife. But one year. One year, I really surprised her at Christmas. Uh, we were in Chicago, cold, long winters. And there was a friend of ours whose parents owned a place in Florida. And uh, my buddy and I worked it out with them and we picked a weekend and we didn't even tell our wives about it. We just bought plane tickets for them. And they both you know, were moms, young moms at home with bunch of kids and diapers and all that. And uh, just that morning, uh, on, on Christmas morning, when they, when they woke up, they, they got plane tickets. Uh, and that was, that was a pretty big surprise there. It's, it's, it's cool to get Christmas surprises, isn't it? Well, today, there are some, pri- some surprises in the passage that we're going to look at, which is Micah chapter 5, verses 1 to 4. Let me, let me set the context here. This is an oracle. It's a, in an Old Testament prophet. It's the third one of three where the prophet Micah moves from a situation involving present distress to future deliverance. And this one stresses the surprising way that, that God is going to bring about that deliverance. So the people there are really under dis- distress. Um, so let me read for you, uh, Micah 5, verses 1 to 4. Marshal your troops now, city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel whose origins are from of old, 
from ancient times. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son, and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. This passage is about God's deliverance. Now, when it was written, we're at the stage of, uh, of Israel's history in the Old Testament where the kingdom is divided. There's the northern kingdom, two tribes, and the southern kingdom, ten tribes called Judah. The two tribes have already been taken uh, into captivity by, by Assyria. And now the, the ten tribes, Judah, the setting is Jerusalem, and they're, they're under attack, and they're, they're about to be attacked. So they are in a situation, a bad, bad situation. And there's a warning. The prophet Micah gives them a warning about what is going to happen. He says, marshal your troops now, city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. I believe Micah was predicting the fall of Jerusalem that was going to happen in about 150 years from this point when it was written and written in the 8th century. And in, indeed, in 586 B.C., Zedekiah, the last king to sit on David's throne, was taken into captivity in Babylon. And what was predicted here came true. They struck Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod because King Nebuchadnezzar, as he sent his soldiers in, they took Zedekiah, the king, and his soldiers blinded Zedekiah by striking him on the cheek, and they took him off to Babylon. So the present situation of, of God's people, Judah, they're, they're there, and this is what's told to them that's going to happen. Now, is there any hope for them? Is there any possibility of a deliverer showing up to rescue them? Are they, are they done as a people? And what about us today? Do we need hope in our society? It, it's interesting that the, the feeling of a need for hope is so prevalent. I, I got in my car the other day and went through a drive through at a coffee shop. And while I was waiting for them to actually finish my order... Uh, the young lady there just started talking to me. She's really nice and started talking to me. And she, she said, oh, I, I, just, I just really want it to get back to normal. But she said, I'm not even sure I'll know what that feels like when it happens. Anybody else feel that? Well, the rest of this passage in Micah chapter 5 goes on to predict something that's going to happen more than 700 years later in verse 1. Um, I mean, not like what was going to happen in verse 1, which was 150 years later, but this is going to come century, decades, centuries later, 700 years, when God was going to provide a person, when God was going to provide a Messiah to bring them deliverance. And that was going to be the ultimate hope. That's what the prophet Micah is doing. He's giving some hope to these people. And yet that hope for them also provides hope for us. So as we, as we look at these uh, these verses. Let's think about three surprises that happen in the passage. So let's keep walking through the passage. Verse two, 
But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Now, the ruler in verse 1 was weak and helpless. But the messianic ruler that's predicted here in verse 2 is going to be strong. His origins will be from old, from ancient times. His lineage will go all the way back to King David. The Messiah will come in the line of David in keeping with the, the covenant that God made with David back in 2 Samuel 7. And he will come in the tribe of Judah, which we know about from Genesis 49. Now, this is a very, very important person. This is the most important person to be born in Israel's history. So surely he'll have a royal birth. Surely he'll be born in an important city like Jerusalem, right? Well, the first surprise in this passage is that he's not going to be born in Jerusalem. He's going to be born in Bethlehem, in a little tiny place. Now, Jerusalem had amazing buildings and architecture. Bethlehem was just a little small town about five miles away from Jerusalem. It was small in size. It was small in significance. Now, Ephrathah was really just an older name for Bethlehem or for the area that surrounded Bethlehem. In Joshua 15, Bethlehem was so small, it wasn't even named among the the more than a hundred cities that were allotted to Judah. And yet in this tiny town, uh, King David was born. He was raised there and he also was the least among his brothers. He attended his father's Jesse's sheep before he was anointed by the priest Samuel to become the king of Israel. And yet Bethlehem also will be the birthplace of the son of God who's going to descend from David. Now, the name Bethlehem means house of bread, and how fitting is it for the bread of life to be born there? But it's, it's a surprise. It's, it's a surprise for Bethlehem to be the place he is, he is born. You know, the NFL uh, chooses uh, different cities to host their biggest spectacle, the Super Bowl. And you think of large cities, you know, like L.A. or... Uh, Miami, uh, this would be like the, the NFL awarding the Super Bowl to Loris, South Carolina. You know, that little town that you drive through on the way to Myrtle Beach, about 3,000 residents. So the first surprise in this passage is God's perspective on humility and greatness. What humans think to be great isn't necessarily what God thinks is great. And how humans don't prize humility, typically God does. So we learn from the fact that he was born in just little Bethlehem. We learn about God's perspective on humility and greatness. Now, this is in keeping with God's ways. Political conventions, they may roll out their candidates with like pomp and circumstances, but God introduces his truly great one in very humble circumstances. Think about when his mother Mary was told that she was pregnant with Jesus and would be giving birth uh, to him. She, she sang in Luke 1, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. And then in Luke 2, the passage that we looked at last Sunday at Harvest, 
thinking about his birth. It was just it was just a humble environment. Jesus, the king of all kings, was born in a manger, a, a, an animal trough that they used to feed the animals. Rather than announcing this birth to kings and politicians, the angel in Luke 2 announced the birth to whom? Humble shepherds. In his book, Immeasurable, Sky Jathani compares two leaders in history. Leader A lifted uh, an entire nation up in a time of despair. He mobilized his people against unimaginable odds with a clear vision and an inspiring passion. He launched a movement that has impacted literally everyone alive today. He set in motion an industrial and scientific revolution that produced the first computer, the first jet airplane, began human exploration of space, and unlocked the mystery of nuclear energy. Almost every aspect of the modern world, in one way or another, has been influenced by this man. And by the time he died at the age of 56, everybody on the planet knew his name. That's Leader A. Leader B lived during the same era. In fact, he died just 21 days before Leader A did. But his life was very different. At the height of his influence, he ran a school with just 100 students. He wrote a few books, but he was not widely regarded. He was beloved by his family and friends, and he had a reputation for being both intelligent and faithful. But at the time of his death, almost nobody knew his name. And most considered his life's work unfulfilled, including Leader B himself. So Sky says, given the choice, which leader strategies would you rather study? Which leadership conference would you rather attend? The one featuring a, featuring a keynote address by Leader A or the one with a small workshop and a back hall led by Leader B? Leader A, Adolf Hitler. Leader B, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German pastor who was executed by the Nazis by, because of his relentless opposition to Hitler. Well, how do we apply this to our life today? How would knowing the birthplace of the Messiah shape our, our lives? If we grasp it, we'll learn that the way up with God is down. We see that God values humility and weakness. So let me encourage you in a couple of ways. Let me encourage you to trust God to do a great work through small things. Personally, some of you don't feel very important. Some of you probably feel small and insignificant. You're not wealthy. You don't come from a recognized family. You weren't born with a silver spoon in your mouth. And you wonder, can God... Can God beat my needs? Can God still use me? I'm not well known. I'm not extremely gifted, but, but can God use me? And I would encourage you, yes, trust him to do a great work through you. That's what God does. And then God gets the credit and the glory. He takes weak, human, frail, humble people, and he uses them. And, and so for you, I encourage you to trust God. And I encourage you to do that for our church. At Harvest, we're not a mega church. We aren't known anywhere on the church map. Charlotte has tons of churches that are huge and are doing a lot of great things. But I believe if we are humble and if we're united before God 
and we get on our faces before God. And that's a big part of the 40 days of prayer coming up is praying and seeking him. And if we humbly say, God, would you use even us? I believe God can use our church in 2021. Let's trust him to do that. So trust God to do a great work through small things. Secondly, cultivate humility and, and boast in God alone. That's what the apostle Paul said in first Corinthians one. He said, God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong so that no one may boast before him. As it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. That's God's perspective on humility and greatness. Well, let's go back to Micah 5. Let's keep walking through the passage. And we come to verse 3. After predicting that this Messiah was going to be born in Bethlehem, The prophet says, therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. Now, in chapters three and four, Micah had predicted that Israel would be destroyed because of its apostasy. Now, here in chapter five, verse three, it tells us how long that humiliation is going to last. It's going to last until a baby is born, until the time when she who is in labor bears a son. The punishment for Israel wasn't permanent, yet they are going to be handed over to their enemies until the ruler that was promised in verse 2 is born and begins his rule. Now, whenever we deal with Old Testament prophecy, we need to, we need to understand the nature of fulfillment. Fulfillment doesn't always happen immediately or all in one instance. There's what we know as progressive fulfillment. So something can be partially fulfilled in the near term, and then it can be fulfilled in a greater way in the long term. And even then, sometimes there's even yet uh, an ultimate fulfillment that's not going to happen until the very, very end. Well, in this case, um, even though the the people of God there in Jerusalem survived the siege that Sennacherib uh, came upon them, Throughout its history, Israel continued to be oppressed. And this phrase tells us what's going to happen. The rest of the brothers are going to return. It's going to happen until the rest of the brothers return. Remember, some of their brothers had already been taken into captivity. And the prophecy was that more was going to happen. (laughs) They, They were going to be sieged, and they were sieged. So what does it mean? This is speaking, this rest of the brothers is speaking of the unfaithful Jewish people that were spread out. And it was like they were going to come back and join the rest of Israel who had remained faithful to the Lord. But Israel was not going to be reunited until the Messiah was born. Now, do you remember Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost? Jesus, the Messiah, had been born. He had lived. He had had died. He had been buried. He rose again. He went back to heaven. And and Peter stood up and preached the first Christian sermon. And who was the audience? It was Jewish people, but it was Jewish people that had been scattered all over the world. They came from what is known as the diaspora. They had come into Jerusalem, and they spoke all these different dialects. and, And God, at that moment worked in their hearts. They repented of their sins. They put their trust in Jesus, their Messiah and Lord, and they were baptized to follow him publicly. So 
the rest of the brothers, yes, in a partial fulfillment, it included the rest of Israelites that came back from captivity. But another part of the fulfillment was happening right there in Acts. It was when not only separated Jewish people came, but ultimately even Gentiles are going to come. Non-Jews are going to come. So Jewish people became reunited to the Messiah in Acts, and then the gospel spread to Jews as well. Jesus said, whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. First Peter 2, the, the apostle said, you are, speaking to Gentiles, you're a chosen, chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So to the first readers of this prophecy, when they read this, here was the surprise. The surprise is that the true members of God's family will not just be all Israel. That's what they would have thought. But it's all spiritual brothers and sisters, of course. Now, though we've not physically descended from Abraham, Gentiles who have put our faith in Jesus Christ are spiritual descendants of Abraham because I have a relationship with this ruler of Israel, the Messiah. Micah 4, 2, speaking of the last days, says many nations will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. Part of God's plan all along was to include others. We're taught, uh, we just taught through Genesis, where God told Abraham that through him, all nations were going to be blessed. Now, how do we respond to this? How do we respond to this surprising truth? Well, I think the response is to thank God for the privilege of being in his family. Thank God for the privilege of being in his family. I think this is a good point to stop and just ask you a question. Are you in God's family? We aren't by nature because we're separated from him. But it, if you will recognize that you are separated from him by your wrong, your choices, your sin, and that Jesus died to bridge that gap between you and God, and you want to depend totally on him and turn your life over to him, if you put your faith in him as your savior in that way, he will save you and you'll become part of God's family. I encourage you to take that step of faith today. And if you've already taken it and you're in God's family, thank God. Thank God for that. Well, finally, let's look at one more thing in, in the passage here. One last peek at Micah. Verse 2 had said, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel. And then in verse 4. It says he will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of his God. So he's called a ruler, but he's also going to shepherd. And you don't think of ruler and shepherd as the same type of person. He will stand and shepherd. Even there, he will stand. That seems to indicate when the Messiah will be installed as king and he will assume his dominion. Uh, but verse 4 describes what kind of ruler he is. He's not just a powerful potentate who doesn't care for the well-being of his people. No, he will be a shepherd king. He will take care of his people. He will feed them. He will lead them. He will protect them. He will be a shepherd of them. 
our version of leadership often, especially the highest leadership, uh, even in America, is that, you know, <laughs> it's being a ruler. And think about even places in the world where there are actual kings or queens. And it's, that would be one type of person to be a ruler. And then we think of shepherd, caring, caring people, maybe pastors or teachers or social workers or just general compassionate people. So we, we have this image of rulers and shepherds. And, and yet here was Jesus, the Messiah, the ruler. He had all authority. And yes, he's going to exercise that authority one day, every knee is going to bow to him. But he doesn't rule heartlessly. Jesus said in John chapter 10, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. There, there are two phrases in verse 4 that elaborate on his shepherding skill about how he will do it. It's in the strength of the Lord. The power of the Son of God, while he ministered on this earth, came from his dependence on God the Father who was his strength. And then the second phrase reinforces that truth in, in just in different language in the majesty of the name of his God. Jesus carried out his ministry in the regal and authority and power of the Lord God himself. There's a unique intimacy between them so much so that Jesus could say, I and the 